According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs 14. I think we've had two classes in this chapter already. This would make our third one. We handled uh, verses 1 through 3 in the uh, inclusio structure that we have there. And then uh, verse 4 is where we left off talking about clean mangers. And uh, of course the clean manger means there's no animal in there. Uh, As soon as you put an animal in there uh, you no longer have a clean manger. That's just going to happen. And so uh, you have to clean it. You have to, uh, there's a price to pay for um, having an animal. Uh, But Ultimately, you're, you're happy to pay that price because there's also a benefit from having an animal. And uh, this comes to uh, issues related to creation and uh, what is the role of animals in creation? Why did God uh, create the animal realm? And what is the function of the animal realm? And, uh, and those things. So anyway, we'll cut, get right back to that and then we'll start talking about liars in, uh, in verse 5. A trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. Okay, no kidding. (laughs) All right, well, we'll talk about that as well. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's take a moment to check our phones, all right, and silent prayer so that we can be in fellowship to study God's truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning and the truth that we have, the truth that you have supplied for us, Father, and the blessing we have to assemble together and stand before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And Father, it's a blessing for us to know that these expectations you hold us to uh, are uh, provided for. Father, you have supplied all things necessary for life and godliness and that uh, we can be completely obedient to your will if we so choose to do so. And Father, um, the desire to, the, the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom, the, the desire to learn in these things. And, uh, and you provide everything else, Father, including the Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us and opens the eyes of our understanding and leads us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And I thank you for these things, Father. So we call upon your faithfulness once again to bless our time today, to uh, open our eyes to what we need to see. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we had, uh, I skip ahead here, point one, which dealt with verses one through three, and then the subpoints A, B, and C, that dealt with verses one, two, and three. And uh, wives, clearly, because of the feminine gender in verse one, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Clearly, that's all in the feminine gender. And then in verse three, it's all in the masculine gender, and forming the inclusio that it does, uh, I, I'm very confident putting husbands and men in, in verse 3, even though m- uh, many or most English translations don't, don't uh, mention the word husband or man or whatnot, but the mouth of the foolish, that's a masculine gender uh, term there, for the foolish man is a rod for his back. And then the lips of the wise man or men, again it's masculine, I think it's masculine singular, will protect them, plural. And so anyway, we dealt with that under point one and the subpoints A, B, and C. And then point two, 
we talk about hard work is messy. And uh, this is where we left off. Hard work is messy. The manger may be clean, but the manger is also not fulfilling its purpose. What's the purpose of a manger? You know, why do you have a manger? And uh, the whole point being is you need a barn for your animals, and that's uh, what a manger is. You've got a a shelter for them, a place to feed them, a a place to clean them, a place to protect them, and uh, all the work that goes into tending an animal. And so if there's no animal in there, great, you know, it's spotless, it's clean, but there's no animal in there. And if there's no animal in there, then you're not accomplishing what uh, God would have for you to accomplish because the much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. And so the value of having an animal is, uh, is more than offsets the, the cost that it uh, is to maintain the animal. And that's the thing. And so whether it's a financial cost or a, 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 a cleaning up the mess cost or whatever the cost is, uh, there is a price to pay for, for keeping animals. And uh, yeah, Abraham was a, a rich man, richer than you know all the men of the east, or Job was richer than all the men of the east, Scripture says, and he had you know 3,000 camels and however many thousand sheep and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, you've got all that wealth, but you've got to feed all that wealth. Okay? Uh, 3,000 camels is a lot of camels to feed, and, and sheep to feed, and goats to feed, and male and female servants and all of that. And so these things are indicators of great wealth, but there's also cost to maintain that wealth. And, and so uh, there's, there's messes to clean up, and that's the way that it's designed. Like clean teeth, the circumstance is not good. The, the same expression is used in, in Amos chapter 4 that talks about clean teeth. And yeah, who doesn't like clean teeth? But the problem is, of course, the reason the teeth are clean is because there's nothing to eat. You're, you're starving. There's a famine that's been bestowed upon the land. And so uh, in the process of, of, uh, of eating, you know, you get your teeth dirty and that's what happens. So you brush your teeth and move on, right? You, who's going to stop eating uh, just for the sake of that? Anyway, the, um, did I ever tell you my Philippine story on that? Remind me after class. That on one of my missionary trips, I'll tell you now, on one of my missionary trips um, we toured Corregidor Island and it was a marvelous tour and of course World War II battle and all the history was amazing. And they had seven tour buses all lined up uh, with the English tour. Bus number eight was the Japanese tour in uh, Japanese language and slightly different perspective on the Battle of Corregidor that, uh, that they were teaching there. But uh, anyway, we got on an English bus. And about part of the fun too was the history of the Philippines that they said, because it was a Spanish colony for 300 years and a lot of uh, the Filipino language is, reflects a lot of Spanish language a lot of the towns and architecture and so forth. But then uh, after the Spanish-American War, the Philippines became American territory, and then there were some struggles there. But uh, one of the big blessings, that they were so thankful for the Americans, they loved the Americans, because when America came, America introduced the toothbrush to the Philippines. And this is a true story. And they said, you know, before... They said they, before the toothbrush was introduced, they, they had a, a stick. And there was a particular tree, twig, and stick that they would chew on and kind of scrape teeth with a stick and chew on like a toothpick kind of a thing. But they said in 1903 or whatever year it was, no, when was the Spanish-American War? Late 1800s. When, uh, when America took custody of the Philippines, they introduced the toothbrush. And so every Filipino has been thankful for that ever since. And uh, also they said... It, it tripled the Filipino population over the next 40 years. It was uh, an interesting uh, little quirk of uh, 
the birth rate skyrocketed once they had the toothbrush, which I thought was hilarious. All right, so that's my clean teeth story from Amos 4.6. Um, back to clean mangers, um, much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. And so we understand revenue, we understand profit, we understand in the Hebrew vocabulary is tavuna that it refers to income, what comes in. And uh, the, the verb bo, B-O with an apostrophe means uh, to come or to go. And, uh, and so to come and then to come in, that's what tabuna speaks or tabua speaks of. And then it gets multiplied when you put the rab prefix on the front of it, rab tabua, much revenue. And uh, this is what God has designed. There's revenue, there's much revenue, there's income and much income. And uh, this, is, this is biblical as it's being presented as a benefit, as it's being presented as a, uh, a glory for the Lord, all right? And it's one that we ought to uh, recognize very well, uh, in particular as Americans. Obviously, we live in a culture that values abundance. Um, in fact, we're spoiled by a lot of abundance, and we just have certain assumptions that uh, better, bigger, more is always good in, uh, in different things. And that can be a prideful thing and a negative thing if we don't keep it in a biblical perspective. And so why has God designed animals? Why has God designed for work? And why, if God has supplied a design that turns income into much income, then uh, why do you choose not to appreciate or not to utilize what God has provided? See? And so this comes back, and again, it comes back to uh, creation. You go back to the uh, to the creation account with uh, the animals. Adam was uh, expected to name all the animals, and as he was naming the animals, he came to the conclusion that uh, none of them were his helper. That he had he needed a helper. This is Genesis chapter two. Um, Verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so he not only was he giving them names, he was also identifying their use, their function, their purpose. And recognizing that none of them were his corresponding helpmate. And, and then of course we understand that here comes Eve and, and there you go. But with respect to these animals though, since they aren't his helpmate, what are they? Why are they there? What is their function? Because God was honoring his, uh, Adam's choice of names. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And so Adam has the capacity to identify these animals and their function and their use and their value and their work that uh, with the ox comes uh, much revenue. And I uh, not a doubt in my mind that Adam understood that when he gave the name to the ox, that this is the this is a beast of burden. This is this is muscle power. This is this is work that can be done here. Much work, you know. An ox can do much more than a man can do, and and uh, on a multiplied basis. See, so um, these are kind of the themes that we want to we want to deal with. Man benefits from the strength of the ox. Okay, and that's a benefit. That's not. This is, this is appropriate biblical stewardship, all right? We're not abusing the ox. We're not um, appropriating the ox. This is not, I realize that, that there's, a, there's an animal rights 
mindset in the world that that um, finds that it's exploitation to uh, to benefit from an animal. All right, it's exploitation because uh, and and uh, anyway, they, they they go to some strange places with this unbiblical, anti-God, anti-stewardship view. Because if you're a biblicist, then we humanity has designated sovereignty over the animals. If you're a biblicist, then, God, then humanity is in the image of God. And humanity is to rule. And so as long as I'm in Genesis, let's remind ourselves of this. It's about what God has done. And um, in Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so um, do the word study, look at that word rule and say, all right, that's, uh, that's given from God. That's delegated from God. Okay? And so if you're a biblicist, if you're a creationist, if you're humble before the, the Lord God, then this is the foundation for our mental attitude, our perspective as it relates to creation, animals, as to uh, so our place within the realm. Now if you're an evolutionist, then it's a whole different way of looking at the world. Then it's all just a big bang accident, there are no moral absolutes, uh, you know, we're on the circle of life along with uh, the the goats and the whatever, and you know, it's it's just uh, it's it's a sad anti-God, anti-authority outlook. Okay, so uh, we are to rule. Now, do we rule as tyrants? Do we rule in cruelty? Do we rule in brutal? No, because we don't abuse our animals. With the rights of rulership come the responsibilities of caring for those that we rule over, and uh, if we abuse our animals. The, uh, then we're not imaging God the way we're supposed to be imaging God. The idea is that we rule over the animals, we rule over the, uh, the plants, we rule over the earth, we, we work the earth, we have sovereignty, but it's a designated, delegated sovereignty under God's overall sovereignty. And so if we, uh, if we rule in such a manner that we're bringing dishonor to God, then we answer to God for how we do that. Okay? That's why a husband is not to be a tyrant over his wife or over his children. That's why uh, we don't uh, abuse our animals. Animal cruelty is, uh, is unbiblical. Okay? All right. And so um, God created man. So uh, that's birds, fish, birds, cattle, creeping things. Okay? Different divisions of, of the animal realm. And God created a man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, not the 26 confusing genders and all this insanity that goes on today. Okay, Male and female he created them. And when you're born and the doctor looks at this little baby and says this is a little boy or this is a little girl, it's not complicated. Okay, And yet 77% of Democrats with a college degree um, yeah, that's the new survey that's out now. Um, say that's not the way it works. That uh, the, the gender you're assigned at birth may not be the gender you choose later on. So anyway, I'm going to stick with the Bible and not get carnal here while I teach my last Wednesday morning in November. So God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. By the way, that's a male-female activity. 
Fill the earth. Subdue it. So now there's a different verb here. The verb is subdue. And then the verb to rule gets repeated. So we've got two different word studies to do, including ruling and subduing. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Ruling is not just eating them, okay? I like eating them. But ruling is more than eating them, okay? Ruling means telling them what to do, choosing which ones you don't eat because you're going to use this one for milk, you're going to use this one for wool, you're going to use this one for, um, for whatever you're going to use it for. This one's going to pull your plow, all right? You're going to be smart about it. You're going to, the ox is going to pull your plow and the chicken's going to lay the eggs and you're going to milk, you know, and you, you don't put the chicken to pull the plow, okay? How dumb would that be? Um, this is a part of how we rule. And so rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so um, when you violate God's design, then you face the consequences. Okay, And plowing with a chicken would be part of what I'm talking about. Or abusing an animal, or doing something according to its design. Or using an animal that's not designed for something and trying to make it you know, here, here's a wild beast and you call it a house pet, hello? And then you're in the news because this python ate your kid? Um, I have no sympathy for that. You're, you're going to prison. Why did you, there, there, are, there are animals that are wild animals and then there are domesticated animals and, and there's a whole, and the scriptures tell us about this, about taming an animal versus domesticating an animal. Those are different activities. And some are not to be domesticated because they are wild. And some can be tamed but not domesticated. Anyway, um, different aspects there. So the uh, strength of the ox is your strength because it's your ox. So use your strength, not your personal strength, use your ox strength to, uh, to pull that plow. And you're going to get a far greater income than if you used your own strength to pull that, or the chicken, to pull your plow. All right? Uh, it just depends on how much income you want to make. Now, with this right comes responsibility. And we taught this, Proverbs 12.10, a man has regard for the life of his animal. Remember that? Proverbs 12.10. And uh, the righteous man has regard for the nephesh, the soul, the nephesh life of his animal. But, the compa- but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. And so there's a responsibility that comes with that. With this right comes a responsibility. I think um, Deuteronomy codifies many of these responsibilities in, uh, in different ways. Deuteronomy 25, uh, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. You know, uh, you, can't, you don't want to starve your ox. The, ar- the ox is pulling the plow for you. Don't put a muzzle on him. If, he's, if he wants to snack while he's working, let him snack while he's working. All right? Because the ox is working for you. You, wanna, you want to uh, care for that ox. And of course, that's a principle that comes into the New Testament. It applies to pastors in terms of why local churches are feeding their pastors. And uh, Paul makes great use of, of Deuteronomy in that uh, by way of illustration. So uh, there are responsibilities. We want to treat the animals well. We want to maintain the animals. If we treat them well, then uh, they'll work harder. We get more productivity out of them and, and, uh, and different things. You know, uh, even in, in the uh, Genesis story of Jacob, that Jacob was a, 
a marvel when he was uh, multiplying his flocks, his father-in-law's flocks, and uh, Laban kept changing the deal because uh, the, the, uh, the flocks of Jacob, they kept having more babies than, than Laban's flocks. And, uh, but this is part of what goes into the Old Testament economy, an agricultural economy, whereby wealth was measured in, uh, in animals, in livestock. It's also a recognition that God's grace has provided. And this is the blending of hard work with the grace of God that's not an either-or. Uh, you know, being a grace-oriented believer doesn't mean you're lazy and you just, you know, get handed everything. That's not grace. You're as hard-working, you're harder-working than the next guy. Paul said, by the grace of God I am what I am, yet I worked harder than all the rest of them put together. Okay? And so, still, staying in Deuteronomy where so many of these things get, get codified, backing up the chapter 12, you're going to see a ton of grace that goes into hard work. Okay? The grace of God gave them manna, but they had to go out and do the work. They had to pick it up every day, and they had to pick up two days' worth on Friday. And so they had to do the work, even though it's grace that's providing. Same thing with animals. It's grace that's providing, but you're going to put them to work, and you're going to put yourself to work. And these things are going to come together in such a way. God gets the glory. All right, Deuteronomy 12, verses 5 through 7. And so there's a warning here um, in verses 1 through 4 is uh, you're going into a land where there's a bunch of wicked people and you're to utterly destroy them. Okay, You're taking their land, God is bringing those cultures to an end. He is absolutely ending the Canaanite culture when He gives that land to Israel. And so uh, these are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. In fact, the iniquity of the Amorite, they were given extra time for repentance and they would not repent. And so with the extra time they were given, now they, uh, they are brought to an end. Their culture is being brought to an end. God is not a multiculturalist. This is a culture that is not worthy of any kind of respect. It, is, it needs to end. Okay? And so that you are to utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. Okay? Now is this, this is not genocide, by the way. Uh, these, these people are free to flee and go wherever they can go. They can, uh, they can surrender and become uh, servants to the Jewish people. But this culture is ending. And um, so the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. So as you dispossess these people, destroy their centers of idolatry. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. These are the sacred pillars like totem poles in uh, American Native American culture. Cut down the engraved images and their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You know, what did the Cherokee used to call this land? I don't know. We're calling it Texas these days. Well, what's it going to be called after we're gone? The people that get sovereignty after our nation is destroyed, what are they going to call it? Well, I don't know that either. But uh, this, God's in charge of this. Acts 17, God appoints the, uh, the rise and fall of nations. There are times and the boundaries of their habitation. God's in charge of that. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes 
to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. And of course that's initially the tabernacle, ultimately the temple, it's going to be Mount Zion in Jerusalem once they get that far in their history. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, the firstborn of your herd and your flock. Well you realize when you start bringing all these animals, what are you doing? Yes, you're worshiping, and yes, you're worshiping the one true God, but you're also cutting into your inventory. You're cutting into your assets. You're, you're diminishing your portfolio because every goat that you bring, as, or sheep or bull or whatever you're bringing, that's one less that you have in your, in, your, uh, in your wealth. And yet this is what they were commanded to do, including the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. You know, he doesn't want the runt of the litter. He doesn't want the scrawny little one that, that came last. He wants the firstborn. Because firstborn is doctrinal. Firstborn conveys a wealth of, of doctrinal teaching with respect to the firstborn of, of creation, Jesus Christ. Verse 7, there shall, and, and so when you bring all these animals, there also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God. You know, these animals that get sacrificed, that's a lot of meat, that's a lot of food, that's a lot of, that's a lot of lunch, that's a lot of uh, fellowship with the priests and the Levites because that's where you're bringing the, uh, the, the, uh, the animals. And so what then happens when you get to sit down and, you know, have lunch with a Levite, okay? You get to sit down and fellowship, you get to learn. They are provided for your teaching, they're provided for your instruction. And so you shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So you don't begrudge the loss of your wealth because you're dedicating it to the Lord and you're fellowshipping as you eat it with His priests, with His Levites, with Him. And it becomes a tremendous opportunity. So it's blending hard work with grace. The grace, what God's grace has provided. And you're recognizing God first. He gets the first fruits. Uh, chapter 14, Deuteronomy 14. And uh, we got clean and unclean. And uh, I mean, who wants, to, who wants to eat a pelican anyway? There's uh, the vulture and the buzzard. Okay, The whole point being with clean versus unclean, it's instructive, it's teaching Israel that they are a set-apart people, that they are, they are called holy for His purpose. They are the holy ones, they are the saints, as opposed to the Gentiles of, of Old Testament times. And so the set-apart nation, the holy nation, the holy people, the saints, if you will, um, of, of the Old Testament, uh, they had restrictions on what they could eat, okay? Including no, no bacon, no pork, which is why I'm thankful <laughs> to be a church-age saint. Anyway, uh, you get through that long list down through to verse 20, and then verse 21, you shall not eat anything which dies of itself, okay? No roadkill. If you find it, it's dead in the field, you don't know how it died or how long it's been there. Uh, you may, and, and, but the point being, think about that. If it dies of itself, you don't eat it. But if you killed it, you can eat it. Okay? And so what keeps you alive? Something else that dies in your place. And you're the one that killed it. All right. 
you may get, again, I'm thankful I've got H-E-B with pre-killed food that, uh, yeah, all right. You may give it to the alien who is in your town so that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I've never understood that, but there it is. You shall surely tithe, here we go, all the produce from what you sow which comes out of the field every year. Now the principle of the tithe, it's legalism, it's Old Testament, we don't have a tithe in grace, we don't have a tithe in the New Testament. Tithing for the church doesn't exist. You don't have to give a 10%, you want to give whatever you want to give. And that's your, uh, your grace and your blessing in the New Testament. But here is the tithe in the Old Testament, but notice even in the tithe comes the principles of grace, comes the principles of God's faithfulness, comes the recognition that we are working but God's grace is providing. And so here's what the tithe is. Every year you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God. See, at the place where He chooses to establish His name. Well, who does He think He is? Okay? He tells me what I can eat and where I can eat it and what's right to eat and what's wrong to eat. And You just don't approach Him on any old basis, on any old terms you want to. Okay? That's been proven ever since Cain brought his vegetables and God says, no, no, no. You, you approach me on the basis I tell you to approach me. And it's going to be with a blood sacrifice. It's going to be on faith. It's going to be to, uh, to reflect the doctrine that you have to learn. So you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where He chooses to establish His name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. It's a fear of the Lord application. Do you fear God or not? And uh, the first of your grain means that first, that first bit that's coming in and you don't know what the total yield's going to be at the end of harvest. You don't know. You know, if, you, if you're getting you know, 10 bushels per acre or 20 bushels per acre or however that works, uh, 50, whatever, whatever that works, you don't know what kind of harvest you're going to have at the end of the year. But when the first, when the first crop comes up, it's going to the Lord. And uh, because you're fearing the Lord, you're walking by faith, you're accepting His grace. Same thing with the firstborn of the herd. Well, I don't know how many, you know, I don't know how many uh, bulls or how many... Uh, Cows, how many, you know, I don't know what the capacity of this, of this mother's going to be. You know, what if she only has one or two and I'm going to give him the first one? Yeah, give him the first one. Because you're going to learn the doctrine of the firstborn. Anyway, um, if the distance is so great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe, now think about it. If, if you're in the far north, if you're from Dan to Beersheba and are you going to walk your bull all the way to, to Jerusalem? How, how nice is that for the bull? How easy is that for you? There's, there's an interesting uh, provision within the, the, the law here. Since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set His name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and then go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So here's where money becomes a medium of exchange. And you don't have to walk your goat or walk your bull all the way to Jerusalem and kill it there. Sell your bull in your hometown. Bring the cash with you. All right. But you're still going to make your appearance before the Lord. And you're still going to feast with His Levites and His priests. And you're still going to worship. And you're still going to learn doctrine. And then you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, for sheep, or wine, or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires. 
okay? Because it's going to be a party. You're going to party with the priests <laughs> when you lunch with the Levites, okay? Whatever your heart desires, there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. It becomes a family function. The father is the head of his family priesthood and the, the parents are instructing the children. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. There's no Levitical land grant. They don't have fields, they don't have herds, they don't have uh, the crops that the other tribes have. So it's um, with the right comes responsibility and a recognition that God's grace has provided. So who needs a clean barn anyway? <laughs> All right. Let's start multiplying the oxen. Let's start multiplying the, the animals. Because the greater the capacity, the greater we can worship, the greater we can glorify Jesus Christ. Chapter 15. Let's see, did I get to the end there? Let's see. Uh, verse 28 says, At the end of every third year you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. So that stays local. Every third year. So two years to the Levites and third year local. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among, among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town, they shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So there's God's blessing, there's the work of your hand, there's the proper um, ministry to widows and orphans. Alright? All made provision there. Chapter 15. Verses 19 through 23. And there's uh, of course issues on the Sabbath year every seven years and then the Jubilee after seven sevens you have your 49th year is a Sabbath year, and then 50 is a Sabbath year. So how much work do you have to do so that you can take two years off? Okay, Because your animals are getting a break, your fields are getting a break, you're not plowing in, in year 49 and you're not plowing in year 50. And so you're, you're plowing again in year 51, but what are you going to eat in year 51? So really those years leading up to, you've got you to have food for year 49, year 50, year 51. Because you're not going to have fresh income until the harvest of what you work in 51, which means you're not going to start eating until the beginning of 52. Right? So yeah, you want to have an ox. You want to have a couple of ox. You want to have a team of oxen. You want to have the abundance to be able to, uh, to save and budget and prepare. Because the Sabbath years should be great years of worship. All right. Anyway, and then you got your kinsmen and those that have become poor and sold themselves into slavery and they get their jubilee. And um, anyway, uh, verse 9, 19. You shall consecrate, this is uh, Deuteronomy 15, 19. You shall consecrate to the Lord your God all the firstborn males that are born of your herd and of your flock. You shall not work with the firstborn of your herd nor shear the firstborn of your flock. That firstborn is not for your wealth, it's not for your benefit, it's not for your production, not for your enjoyment. It's consecrated to the Lord. You and your household shall eat it every year before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. But if it has any defect, such as lameness or blindness or any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Now as they started cheating on this, you read Malachi, they were cheating on this. They were given the, the lame and the blind and the sickly animals because they wanted to keep the good ones for themselves. And God says, you're, you're robbing me. You're robbing me. 
when you're stealing from me. You shall eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean alike uh, may eat it. As a gazelle or as a deer, only you shall not eat its blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. So we're learning doctrine of firstborn. We're learning doctrine of blood. We're not going to consume the blood. The blood is going to be poured out. What kind of doctrine do we learn about blood poured out? Okay, All of this comes to, to what God used in Old Testament theology, what God used to teach Israel, to teach all of humanity about the coming kinsman redeemer. The firstborn was going to lay down his life. He was going to pour out his soul. Okay. Anyway, tremendous doctrine that, uh, that goes with that. Um, so I guess that's enough on animals. Um, they are tasty. Uh, but the, the blessings of killing them and the blessings of fellowshipping with the priest, the blessings of learning doctrine, the blessings of giving glory to God for what He provided... Um, but you do with what is your own. What is your own? That was something else I was going to stress. You know, Proverbs 12.10, a man has regard for the life of his animal. Whose animal is it? It's his animal, right? There is ownership of animals. That's his animal. He gave the name to the animal. By the way, it's also his wife, and that gets some feminists upset. But uh, with, with propri- uh, proprietary rights is, uh, is the, comes the responsibilities, but then also comes the freedom to utilize these resources as you're led by the Lord to glorify Jesus Christ. So anyway, that's with respect to that. And um, propriety. Uh, even the Ananias and Sapphira, when they sold their land, Peter said, look, it's yours, do with it what you want. And even if you, after you sell it, the price, that's yours. Do with it what you want. Where they went wrong was lying about it. They, they, they gave a, a partial amount but said it was all the amount and they were lying to God and they were manipulating the circumstance. That's why they died the sin of the death. Peter said you didn't have to give a dime. It was all yours. Before you sold it, after you sold it, the money was yours. Do with it as you will. That's what, uh, that's what ownership con- conveys. It is yours to do with as you will. All right. So his animal, his ox. Man benefits from the strength of the ox. All right. So there you have it. Any questions on that? Comments on that? Have we seen pets anywhere? (laughs) Cliff and I were talking about that a couple of lunches ago. The doctrine of pets in the Bible. There aren't any. So uh, you go to principles. You go to the principles of Scripture. What does Scripture say? Um, you know what? We, we live in an age of liberty and we are free we, to, to do whatever you want to do in the Lord. And you've got freedom. You know, I, I think you're a moron with a python or a, you know, some vicious animal. Uh, but you know, dogs, cats, whatever, fish, hamsters, um, whatever you're going to have that you find a reason to have it um, <laughs> you then have to ask yourself there is a cost there is a benefit maybe <laughs> and then you ask yourself no, no, no seriously though here's the, here's the thing and I'm, I'm dead serious about this because I believe people idolize their pets a lot of times Okay, and when you turn your pet into an idol 
you are committing the sin of idolatry. All right? So I'm not telling you don't have a pet. The only reason I don't have a pet is because my wife's allergic to everything on planet Earth. Okay? Uh, dogs, cats, you know, she was okay with the hamsters. I didn't, yeah. But um, you're not sinning if you have a, a pet. Okay? Not sinning if you have a cat. Even if you have a dog, that's not a sin. Okay? The Bible says beware of the dogs, and I'm going to preach that in Proverbs 3. I'm going to preach that for weeks in Proverbs 3. But here's the thing though, ask yourself, are you biblically applying the principles of stewardship? Or are you violating the principles of stewardship? And you don't have to prove that to me, you've got to answer that to, to the Lord and answer that to yourself. Okay? Because when you exchange the truth of God for a lie, when you exchange and worship the creature rather than the creator, you've crossed a line into idolatry. And we worship what we serve. And we serve, if, are we, does the animal serve us or, does we serve, or do we serve the animal? That's, that's a legitimate thing, okay? And so what is your benefit? What is your value? How is that animal serving you? All right? And, and yes, so going back to biblical times, this is why we're so wealthy and we're so prosperous and we're so fat, dumb, and happy, okay? Because in the ancient world, an animal that wasn't pulling its own load <laughs> was the next animal you were going to eat because if it's not working, what, what's it doing? Okay? Why am I feeding this thing if I'm getting no benefit from it? All right? And so um, the idea of a pet, of an amusement, of a, uh, of a um, that, that's not anywhere in the ancient world, so it's not reflected in the biblical record. Okay? Um, far as that goes. Pharaoh had some little pets and Cleopatra had some little pets and it was just viewed as a, as a, as a extravagance, as just a, a quirk of, of the god Pharaoh who could do what he wanted to do anyway and kind of a thing. So uh, is this animal are, are you exercising biblical stewardship in subduing and ruling that animal and are you uh, have you gone from Tabua to Rab Tabua. Is it benefiting you in uh, in uh, what it's designed to do? All right, and if it's not, just know that it's not, and uh, then ask yourself: Wait a minute, am I worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator? And 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 you draw that line yourself, and you draw that line, and and determine, um, uh, the, you know that you have regard for the life of the animal but you're not going to you're not going to spend $8,000 on the vet bills for for this thing sorry i can get another cat i'm not going to spend $8,000 on this cat okay <laughs> and trust me my sister-in-law works at the the vet hospital in uh, Round Rock and yeah there are some amazing veterinary bills, veterinary health insurance plans. Um, anyway. Um, so, that's the principle there. Um, if, if, um, if the animal is productive and serving God's design, then uh, there you go. Point three. Let's get to liars. A trustworthy witness will not lie, 
but a false witness utters lies. All right, this is probably the easiest verse in the whole Bible to teach. <laughs> Truthful people tell the truth. Liars tell lies. Okay, like seriously? <laughs> That's a no-brainer. But it's actually bigger than that. I think it's, it's glorious. Beyond the generic truthful person and the generic liar, Proverbs 14.5 is illustrative of the entire Bible. Because you see, the entire Bible is telling us, revealing the God of truth and His Son who is faithful and true. In fact, when we reread verse 14.5 here, a trustworthy witness that's Christological. It, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the amen, the beginning of the creation of God who says this. Okay, I'll show you these verses. So, yes, a trustworthy witness will not lie. Reread re the verse and plug in Jesus Christ there. Jesus Christ will not lie. And that becomes important because you and I have eternal security based on Jesus Christ not lying. The one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Because a trustworthy witness will not lie. But a false witness breathes out lies. The false witness not only utters a word of breathing, it's, it's, it's like all Scripture is God-breathed, all uh, lies are satanically breathed. A false witness utters lies. So beyond the generic truthful person and the generic liar, in other words, the kind of the duh understanding of verse 14.5. This verse is illustrative of the entire Bible. The God of truth, Psalm 31.5, and His Son, whose name is faithful and true, Revelation 1.5, Revelation 3.14, Revelation 19.11, plus the Spirit of truth. All three members of Trinity have truth attached to them. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. God is the God of truth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all truth. He's the Spirit of truth. John 14, 17, John 15, 26, John 16, 13, 1 John 4, 6. And all of this stands opposed to the liar and the father of lies in John 8, 44. Okay, so we've got a lot to look at. We've got 13 minutes to look at them. <laughs> If I don't get through this hour, then uh, you're stuck out until December. Um, but understand what this is. This is, this is the, the epic battle of creation is truth versus lie. And we face it today. Uh, I was joking earlier about the, the whole truth versus lie. Evolution is one realm. Sexuality is another realm. Marriage is another realm. You name it, if there's a hot-button political issue... There is truth and there is a lie and Satan's minions are consistently on one side. Every single time. Alright, Psalm 31.5 Does this sound familiar? Into your hand I commit my spirit. <laughs> okay, this isn't Jesus, although it is a thousand years later. This is David prophesying. This is David a thousand years before Christ. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me. 
O Yahweh, God of truth. Isn't that beautiful? I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in Yahweh. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. You have not given me over to the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet on a large place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Anyway, this is the Davidic Psalm. Loving and worshiping and celebrating the God of truth. Jesus will quote this verse when he hangs on the cross and when he likewise um, commits his spirit to the Father's hands. The God of truth. Of course, his son is faithful and true, and I love these titles as well. Um, Revelation 1.5, Revelation 3.14, Revelation 19.11. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. What? The faithful witness. The Eid Amunah that we have here in Proverbs 14.5. The firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Not to the liar and the father of lies but to the faithful witness who speaks the truth. Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of the Father's plan. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 14. This is to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the Amen. What's Amen? Yeah, but it's, it's, uh, it's an agreement. It's a, uh, it's a uh, response to a promise it is, it is the same Hebrew word for faithful that we have in Proverbs 14.5 this morning. The faithful witness is the amuna witness. I'll show you that here in a minute. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the beginning of the creation of God. This goes great with uh, Proverbs 8 and Colossians 1 and, and uh, John 1 and, and so forth. He is the faithful and true witness. And when he comes back at Armageddon in, in 1911, Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And uh, we get to follow after him as well riding on white horses. Verse 14, the armies of heaven, the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And then, of course, the spirit of truth. John 14, 17, John 15, 26, John 16, 13, 1 John 4, 6. Got all those as well. Going quickly, running out of time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John 14. Great rapture passage, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus has been in heaven the last 2,000 years. When he comes again, he's, we're going to meet him in the air. He's going to take us back to heaven. That's why we have to have a premillennial rapture, pre-tribulational rapture. Verse 6, I am the Hadas and the Aletheia and the Zoe. Remember, Hadas is your 
feminine noun that looks masculine, and then Aletheia and Zoe. The way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth. He is the truth, a faithful and true witness. And then it's to your advantage that I go away. I will ask the Father, verse 16, He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. So the Spirit of truth. John fifteen twenty six. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have... Let's see. Uh, when the, verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine, therefore I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That's the spirit of truth. And we should know the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The spirit of Antichrist, 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. See, they are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. See, Satan is the liar and the father of lies in John 8, 44. And so the whole conflict that's revealed from Genesis to Revelation, from the lying snake of chapter 3 to the... To the uh, casting in the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. It's the God of truth and the father of lies. Jesus says, you are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. See, and notice the link between murder and not standing in the truth. Murder and lying because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He breathes the lies. There's a breathing activity in uh, Proverbs 14. All right. Now, because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Let me just share one more thing and cut you loose for the day. Um, let me bring this up, close this, open this. Close this. I'm going to make this big enough to see. Even for the back row. All I need is verse 5. Too big. All right. Um, there was an article yesterday on why do I need to learn Greek and Hebrew. And uh, you know, with software now, you don't even need to know Greek and Hebrew. You can just use the software and it tells you everything you need. Well, what if the software gets it wrong? What if there's a mistake? What if it's not tagged correctly? And so even if you have an interlinear, um, it may not have the right word. So uh, when you open up an interlinear, and here I've got it in three columns. So, um, you know, trustworthy, when I click on trustworthy, it shows me in the Septuagint, it shows me in the Hebrew, it shows me those words that we're looking at. And uh, by the way, yeah, in the Hebrew, there's your emunim, there's your, uh, from amen, emunim. So you have aid emunim, the witness, by the way, is uh, used twice, the same word is used twice, witness 
is the aid that's there, and this witness is the second aid, aid that's there. Witness shows up twice. It's martus in the Greek, in the Septuagint, martus. Um, so you have a trustworthy witness, will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. And here's where your interlinear gets it wrong. Because the false witness, if I highlight false here, there we go, um, it highlights the pseudē in, uh, in the Greek in verse 5, the pseudē martus. So you've got a martus pistos, and then you've got a pseudē martus. And see, that's tagged wrong too. The pseudē should not be... Uh, that's interesting. The pseudē is the lies, not the false. And the same thing with the, uh, with the kazavim there. The kazavim is the lies, not the false. Because the false witness, see? Anyway, it's tagged wrong. If I highlight here the aid shaker, there's your false witness. There's your aid shaker, false witness. But they don't tag the shaker as false. They tag the shaker as lies, for utters lies. In other words, they've swapped the two words around. Same thing. So here's utters lies. Here's the yafich. Kazavim, there's the utter's lies. And uh, but they highlight the the witness, the false witness there. Anyway, so it's tagged wrong. And if all you're doing is looking in interlinear, you're gonna end up with the wrong word, you're gonna end up with an error. Now I'm gonna go home this afternoon and I'm gonna report that glitch to Logos as a typo. You can report that as a typo and uh, just you know right-click it and uh, right there, report typo. Or share to Facebook. No, I'll, I'll report typo. And uh, click on report typo and then uh, point out to them, hey, you tagged this wrong. You swapped the two words around. You swapped the word for false and the word for lies and uh, you got it backwards. You need, to, you need to flip them and you'll be good. So anyway, that's uh, my exhortation to Bill and to Lewis and to anyone else that uh, study the languages, don't rely on the software, use the software, but, but double-check things so the software can get it wrong. And uh, double-check things and make sure that uh, you're looking at what you're supposed to be looking at. All right, well, I'm out of time. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, Oxen and Dirty Barns. I thank you for, um, thank you for the faithful and true witness. I thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And I thank you, Father, that not only is He my Savior, but I am baptized into union with Him. I am in the bride of Christ. And Father, the blessings that are His are my blessings as well. And the positional truth reality of the head and the body, which is the church. So Father, uh, continue to bless these studies and show us what these things are about so that we can make application for the glory of Jesus Christ. I thank you in His most precious and holy name. Amen.